0: Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast here on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to sign up, subscribe, and recommend us to someone else that you think might enjoy what we do. Uh, We start with our update on the firing of Joel Quenville from the Florida Panthers. The second winningest all-time NHL head coach is gone because of how he handled the sexual abuse scandal with his former team, the Chicago Blackhawks, 11 years ago. We'll update you on that. Some amazingly poignant audio as well from former NHL head coach John Tortorella, who is rumored, as I speak right now, to potentially take over in Florida. Rod Phillips, Minister of Long-Term Care, updates on a busy week of announcements from the provincial government as to where long-term care goes. We talk about uh, for-profit versus not-for-profit. We talk about uh, paying people a proper wage that keeps them in that business longer. All of those things. Uh, Dr. Gene Noble will join us from San Francisco. We talk about COVID becoming more endemic, and we do that with a guest from the Wall Street Journal as well who went to Lisbon, Portugal, with a high, high vaccination rate there, and they're getting back to normal. What are they doing that we can learn by? All important questions. And as well, Ryan Imgren on the show, biostatistician. We have him on every Friday to update us on the do's and don'ts of COVID-19. It's all coming up on the Toronto Today podcast. Uh, Joining us now, uh, he's Ontario MPP for Ajax. He's also the Minister of Long-Term Care. He's had a busy week uh, with announcements, but a lot of this is progress moving forward. He is Rod Phillips. Rod, it's great to have you on the show again. Thank you very much for making the time. Good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me back. I'm absolutely. I'm sure you see headlines, uh, and you know, in, in news stories, and it's tricky. We need context for stories sometimes, and the headlines are well, um, you know, Ontario is going to hire more inspectors, but there also is more funding being put in for staff. I think people have sort of cringed at that headline because they think, well, the inspectors aren't any good if the conditions aren't changing. There's money being there's there's infrastructure and money being put into both those things.
1: Just this week, Greg, uh, another hundred million dollars to hire two thousand more nurses, and and these are nurses that are going to have been personal support workers, internationally trained nurses, um, registered practical nurses to upgrade their skills, and and that goes against the the bigger investment of four point nine billion dollars that's going to take us to those extra twenty seven thousand staff. Uh, They're going to take us to four hours of care. So lots of investment going on. And of course, yesterday, introducing uh, legislation to make sure that the accountability and the enforcement and the transparency is there and is there that people have been asking for.
0: The distinction is pretty significant, isn't it, between a uh, unannounced inspection and letting the home know, um, you know, a day or two ahead of time. That's. That's a different story, right? I think we realized we'd see more the real conditions of a long-term care home or, or any any medical center um, if they were spot inspections, spontaneous inspections, and you didn't give people time, if you will. It's like when you find out the relatives are coming, you, you have a sweep through your house and you tidy it up, and it doesn't look like it did two days ago. But it's important that it it the, the conditions are the same seven days a week, 24 hours a day in these places.
1: That's right. And and listen, the staff work very hard and, and the majority of the operators work very hard. But, Greg, I think I mentioned the last time I've been dropping by myself mm-hmm. um, unannounced um, with an inspector. And I've seen, you know, exactly what you, you described it. Well, it's like when you know companies coming and when you know they don't. Um, and we've made sure now with the new uh, legislation I introduced yesterday that these more inspectors will also have the ability to, you know, put uh, put control orders or, or or any of the things they need to do right away. Um, we've actually created as well a, a group of them uh, that are going to have investigative uh, backgrounds, uh, former former law enforcement, for the extreme cases. Um, but the other thing that the long term care commission suggested and we've done is is what they call proactive inspections, but also working with them before problems happen. So you know, a lot more inspectors with more authority. But the point you made is the right one. The number one thing, and the number one thing in the bill I introduced yesterday is legislating four hours of care that extra staffing, staffing make all makes all the difference. I,
0: I wonder about the distinction that the public seems to have. and And you obviously, um I, I think, like i said, the the tone in in how you uh, address the public's concerns, um, to me ha- is different. And to me, uh, it's a compliment. It, it has improved. That's my perspective on it. When you hear from people who have to process the idea of a relative going into long-term care, there's there's almost a level of um, you know frustration and, and grief and nervousness about the whole process as it is. But, but the distinction between private long-term care and for-profit long-term care and not-for-profit long-term care Is there any way we're able to swing the pendulum back? It just feels like that narrative is out there that, well, my relative will get better care and be more looked after at a not for profit place. Is that the common public perception that's there and outside of material changes to not for profit? What changes the perception?
1: Well, you know, it, it is the case that we just want to work with the best providers and we have very good providers that are private sector providers. We have providers that are not-for-profit providers. We have providers that are municipalities. But, you know, one of the big problems, as you know, Greg, is the shortage of beds and we've committed to building 30,000 of them. And I'm in Ottawa today um, to break ground on a new home in Stittsville, which is just outside Ottawa, in 256 beds. Um, similar today, there's 50 new beds opening up in london ontario both of those have been built by by the private sector and uh and all i know is that you know the mayor is going to be here I'm Mm. unfortunately not going to be in london for the elmwood place because i'm here in ottawa but the mayor will be there too the communities are excited to have new beds because we have such shortages these beds are going to have the same tough rules they're going to have the same accountability the same enforcement uh, that I talked about in in the new legislation we brought yesterday, but but um, but people are happy to see the beds. So obviously we have to make sure that the quality is there and quality of life and quality of care is the focus. And uh, and and we have to you know make sure we use the inspections and other things to ensure that. But we also need we need those thirty thousand new beds um, and those two hundred fifty six beds in Sitville. wouldn't be there um, if it wasn't for you know the private sector working with us.
0: Do you have authority uh, as Minister of Long-Term Care to deny a license or a renewal of a license to a home? Or does that have to go to a separate board? Can you do it arbitrarily, Rod?
1: Well, it's one of the you know, hopefully not arbitrarily, but it is one of the changes that we've we've made in uh, in this new legislation that uh, that I introduced, which is to give us the power, first of all, to use supervision. You know, like when uh, when sometimes the province has taken over a school board or a hospital in the past when there's been issues. We haven't had that direct authority in the past, so we're going to have that going forward. Um, and also, and this is listening to families, uh, we've set up a situation and, you know, this will be discussed through the legislation going through the through Queen's Park, but where the minister can, in extraordinary circumstances, uh, deal with a license um, if there are concerns that have been raised and if the licensing officials haven't dealt with them. So, so there is that ability to, to intervene. Again, we want as many high-quality homes with high-quality care to be opened. Um, I know the staff work hard and all of them. I've seen that being out there. But... People, after the experience of COVID, after the experience, frankly, of the last few decades of the problems that mm-hmm. have happened in long-term care, they want to see they want to see that accountability, and we're going to make sure that happens.
0: Rod Phillips is our guest, Global News Radio, six forty, uh, Toronto. When when we talk about that level of uh, of accountability, I think people applaud that. I think what they look at and the perception is is that it is still it's hard to create longevity in these in these places of employment. There may not be. Um, The financial incentive, is there a way that you see uh, a way forward that we get we, we reach a certain level of threshold of pay you know politics you know how hard it is to get good people in politics but the pay is a nice incentive i, I would say for teachers both my parents were teachers if, without the you know uh, some of the incentives that go along with teaching a pension summers off we wouldn't have as many good people in education how do we get the best people who want to work in long-term care homes and it's economically sustainable for them
1: Yeah, Greg, it's a a huge uh, focus. Um, This week uh, we announced, again, the extension of the $3 increase for our personal support workers. You know, tough jobs, and they they deserve it, and the Premier has made it clear we're going to make that permanent. But beyond pay, and pay is important... Part of it is about these new facilities. Um, part of it is building, we have 220 new facilities or redeveloped facilities that are just going to be better, safer, more modern places to work. We're also introducing, you know, so many of the staff in healthcare want to progress through healthcare. So I mentioned uh, uh, earlier that we've added $100 million so that PSWs can become nurses, so that registered practical nurses can become nurses, and the province will pay, um, you know, $10,000 uh, of support for that tuition. So, you know, people, we need people. To um, to want those careers, we're going to be starting some some promotion about that. We need 27,000 new people so that we can get the additional care that'll make the difference. But it's about the place you work, it's about how much you make, um, and it's about having enough team members uh, to want to be there at work. And, and I think I think we're going to make a difference.
0: Here. I'm sure you've got a thought on uh, on vaccinations. You probably uh, well aware. Dr. Kieran Moore yesterday uh, said we are not going to create a mandate uh, that forces parents to vaccinate five to 11 year olds. And well, I'm I'm for, uh, I don't love uh, the concept of of a mandate. I do think if it's going to get us to certain benchmarks for a brief period of time, we have to do it. But I also understand, uh, you know, you and I, so many listeners being parents, it, that's a really difficult sell and and I was really surprised when the city of Toronto came out and said well we're going to push for a mandate for 5 to 11 year olds but my thought was rod we haven't even done that with 12 to 17 year olds yet we've given the parents the choice for older kids we haven't done it for 5 to 11s what was your thought about about what Dr. Kieran Moore did yesterday saying it's not going to happen but we certainly encourage people to get vaccinated
1: listen it- this has been um, so complicated and so challenging for for some people as far as the vaccination, and and here in Ontario we have to be proud of what people have accomplished with close to eighty eight percent now with uh, with the first dose. I think the the cautious approach uh, with with kids um, engaging parents. I mean it's always good to engage parents when you're talking about their their children um, education, and I think Dr Moore has done a really good job at that. I have to give him a shout out as well if I can. Mm. Um, you know. Greg, we have we're down to the lowest number of outbreaks, just three outbreaks in Ontario. Which is very small, given there's 628 uh, homes. Uh, Dr. Moore really led the way, uh, along with our government, in terms of giving boosters uh, to uh, people in long-term care homes back in August, before before the the national uh, program was in place. That has made all the difference, and so I think I think he's shown great leadership. I think I think we need to be conscious of what you know what, what parents think and and keep that progress going. Uh, you know, 88 percent that's leading uh, you know jurisdictions anywhere in north america um, you know if you haven't got your vaccination yet please do um it's so important
0: rod thanks very much safe travels back from ottawa and uh, i appreciate the time have a good weekend we'll talk again soon take care greg thanks dr g noble is out in california getting up super early for us she's the director of covid response for university of california san francisco we got a lot of reaction to interviewing dr monica gandhi last week and dr noble um you know, doing what she can as well, um, because we've got to normalize the lives of our kids, not take chances with uh, COVID. I understand that, um, you know, students will be vax, VAX eligible in California next week, all students. And there'll be a point in time when there is a move and a shift. And Dr. Noble joins us now to an endemic virus. Do I have that right? Do we look and say we're, we're making that pivot right now, if not, you know, through risk mitigation physically, but certainly mentally as well.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. We need to make this mental pivot, this psychological pivot towards from from living in a pandemic to COVID being an endemic disease. And what I mean by that is COVID really has gotten to the point in high-vax settings like California um, to be a nuisance, but it is not a deadly threat unless you are unvaccinated. And, and so we really have to begin to treat COVID like influenza or upper respiratory viruses once you have a highly vaxxed population and you know and and really stop the quarantine, stop the case counting, and focus on just the people who really are getting sick from COVID. And the vast majority of those are the unvaccinated. So focusing our all of our efforts on getting the hesitant vaccinated. Is is where COVID policy should be, and for the vaccinated, we need to go back to life as normal. It's high time we
0: do that. Dr. Jean Noble, our guest, by the way, Global News Radio six forty Toronto on Toronto today. She's the associate professor of emergency medicine, director of COVID response uh, at USCF. I, I asked that, um, and and you lay that out there, and I think. That game kind of changed. It felt like in the spring where we talked about herd immunity and we talked about, you know, the, the vaccine sort of stamping down the virus to um, an unrisable level. Did did the Delta variant change that in the sense that it's not more deadly per se or more, um, you know, more dangerous, um, but it's more transmissible. So this was going to spread more, but it, it felt like we still had that we can push this down to not worry about it being endemic um, a year ago at this time or February, March of this year?
2: Yeah, we did. And Delta really changed it because we saw such a big surge in case counts. If we had stuck to the initial messaging that our vaccines work and the, the goal of our vaccines are to prevent serious disease and hospitalization, I don't think we would have had to transform our COVID policy or, you know, bring in new restrictions once again with Delta if we had really had sort of intellectual clarity around that. Delta is exactly not more deadly, does not serious disease, but much more likely to spread among the unvaccinated. And people who are vaccinated who get Delta just as they got alpha or other variants of COVID do fine. I mean, if, if you if you have a breakthrough infection, it's a very mild case, not something that we need to be concerned about from a public health viewpoint. So we did have a big surge in cases with Delta, and it became really clear that those who were unvaccinated were going to get sick. Um, and if we'd stuck to clear messaging on that, I don't think we would have had to revise so many of our policies based on Delta.
0: And it's time. And Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, that, that's interesting you say that because I'm I'm a pretty keen observer of uh, of U.S. politics. That's what my degree was in, in university, even up here in Canada. And I lived in Michigan for 10 years. So I know the system. I know uh, I, I know how politicized things can get in the U.S. What I didn't see coming is I, I understood the arguments about lockdowns on one side or the other, Um, you know, some economic principles and freedoms. What I honestly didn't see coming was that the vaccines themselves would become, a, you know, a political battle and a political fight. Did you worry that they that they were? Um, did you worry that 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 would be um, drawn along political lines? Never mind just whether to believe in their effectiveness or not. They, that's hard to argue data wise, but just whether they would be taken and accepted as this is the best thing for you to move forward.
2: I you know I think the US coming out of the real polarization that we saw under uh, under President Trump um it wasn't it wasn't a big surprise that vaccines were polarized along political lines but I do think that we made some real mistakes in our public health messaging particularly by our our CDC in that what we did when we started talking about emphasizing breakthrough infections and trying to really scare our population into getting vaccinated we took away all of the immediate tangible benefits of vaccination by by telling people that once you're vaccinated, you still have to mask. And I think for the vaccine hesitant in this very polarized climate that we have, Uh, People said, well, what the heck? Why am I going to get vaccinated? That vaccine can't be that great if I still can't even take off my mask. And so I think we lost um, an important opportunity to really depoliticize and focus on what the immediate benefit would be if you got vaccinated, that your life would go back to normal. And so forget the politics, it's just real. You can unmask, you can go back back to life as pre-COVID. Once you're vaxxed, we didn't do that. And so we instead we had a lot of debate about vaccine effectiveness, about whether, you know, this was a, a conspiracy on the left, whether COVID really existed and just got mired in a lot of unscientific, unproductive um, polar polarized commentary.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing you say that because even up here in, in Canada, I remember on, on a Sunday afternoon in the spring when things were starting to look better, maybe even in advance of uh of the Delta variant, our our Canada's chief medical officer of health said, don't forget, even if you're double vaccinated, you can still become infected. And I thought to myself, I I know what she's saying. I know what she's saying. But the language you use there, you're making it sound like the vaccine's aren't protecting you from a bad outcome health wise well they are and and aren't aren't making it less likely that you spread which they also are able to do but infected to to most people sounds like well that means i get sick and it doesn't it it means the vaccines were never meant to make everybody test negative for the virus and that messaging just you're right and on your side of the border here uh, i would argue in western europe that message just didn't get emphasized enough by health officials
2: yeah, I, I think if we had chosen to stick to the data and not try to emphasize uh, breakthrough infections and really scare people into getting vaccinated, we wouldn't be in the position we are in today. And we would have had higher vaccine uptake and, and lower, lower hospitalization rates.
0: Dr. Gene Nobles joining us uh, in a few minutes left uh, from uh, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto, on Toronto Today. Um, now we come to kids and that, that you know, that's an, an amazingly um, polarizing topic that probably we, we shouldn't have been surprised by. It's one thing to say, well, I want grandma to be vaccinated or I want somebody with comorbidities and, and some of the warning signs of a potential bad outcome to be vaccinated. But this is the harder convince, isn't it, is is when Pfizer approves uh, when, you know, when when five to 11 year olds are approved, approved in the United States for vaccines, which is coming five to elevens in Canada are. It's one thing to say, yeah, you know, your 80 year old grandpa should be vaccinated. It's another thing to tell a parent, not only, you know, should we recommend that your seven year old healthy kid be vaccinated? but you have to do it or, or they can't go to school anymore. They can't play sports. That's a, that just ends up being a harder sell because of all the hard data we have, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is a harder sell. And unfortunately, you know, there was a recent Kaiser poll um, here showing that only about a third of parents of five to 11 year olds are going to, or plan to vaccinate their kids immediately as soon as, as soon as they are eligible, which will probably be next week. Uh, And that's, you know, and that's a shame. I think that if we had done this differently, um, if there was a tangible benefit, again, for the kids to get vaccinated, as in they could stop wearing masks at school, then you would get much higher vaccine uptake. It is, you know, from the beginning, this has not been a pediatric disease, as we know. Um, Your unvaccinated child has about the same risk of serious illness or death from COVID as a vaccinated 40 to 60 year old. So to say that kids have to be vaccinated for their own protection is, you know, it's, um, the, it will protect them from COVID. COVID will, is typically a mild disease. The vaccines are very safe. So, you know, I am all for vaccinating kids but it's a hard sell. And it's particularly a hard sell when the kids themselves are not reaping an immediate benefit from vaccination as in getting to go back to a normal school routine.
0: Yeah. Thoughts from Dr. Gene Noble. So much to get into with our next guest. Very happy she's joining us. Sabrina Razak is a PhD candidate, faculty of kinesiology and phys ed at the University of Toronto. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much for making the time.
3: Thanks for having me, Greg.
0: How's that PhD candidate? Uh, when do we get to call you Doctor? When when will that happen?
3: Hopefully in the new year. Hopefully in the new <laughs> year.
0: Well, you sound on track. You don't sound to have any uh, doubts about uh, about that. That'll be a great feeling to be done.
3: Optimism, optimism is
0: good. I think, <laughs> but you won't be a doctor of opti- optimism. It'll be something different than that. That won't be on yeah. uh, on your business card. <laughs> hey, when all this stuff comes down with uh, with the Blackhawks, uh, when all w- when we see all this stuff, um, I remember being on the radio so often, front and center with the Penn State stuff, and. Um, and it's horrifying. It's um, you. You. You don't even know. You go through so many emotions. You are saddened. You're angry. You want blood. You want. You want heads to roll. And and at the same time, there's there's the sadness just listening to those words of Kyle Beach the other night. How did it all land for you?
3: I think that we are now in a moment where accountability is paramount to. These sports organization after the renewed racial uprising, after Me Too, we are really holding our leaders to the fire on some of these really important issues and noting that athletes are humans and treating them in a way that acknowledges the harm that they experience is important. And I think that we place within sport organizations, winning is everything. And the bottom line is everything. And that's starting to fray a little bit now uh, when we ha- when we were just centering the importance of these issues. So it was, I think it was um, redemptive for me and to, to hold these leaders accountable. And also the fact that, you know, TSN, Rick Westhead was reporting this and many other news outlets were reporting this. Actually, seen, I shouldn't say many, but several others were reporting this as well. And it took over a decade for it to come to fruition.
0: Yeah, it's I, I hate the concept uh, of the quote unquote old boys club thinking that it's as it's it's as prominent. Maybe it maybe it's even grown in power to some extent in some of these sports organizations. We just saw it with the Las Vegas Raiders and and John Gruden and archaic uh you know, medieval-type language um, that that we've we've just banished, um, um, even from private conversations, let alone what you would want to display um, publicly. We all curse, but that's not what John Gruden was doing. And I look at it, um, Sabrina, and I think, uh, you know, I I thought we'd be, you know, Sheldon Kennedy happens, and I think, well, we're going to get past something here. Theo Fleury comes out and says, yeah, uh, you know, me too. And then we think, well, he's a superstar. We'll move past something. And then we don't. And it's so frustrating.
3: Yeah, it is frustrating. And I think the culture, you know, within uh, sports as well, especially at the elite level, the toxic masculinity is is a culture that is supported. It is upheld. And it is encouraged. You know, if you look at these sports, they're contact sports um, and they are violent in, in nature and that bravado that males have feel that pressure to show. That's for me, I think some of the things that are missing from the conversation is how do we then look at the culture of sports and and look at the men that are participating in sports and you know train and teach them that it's okay to show emotion and it's okay to show support. And that also I loved about Kyle when he did come out is that he did receive more support then, then and then any criticism so i do think the move the needle has moved a little bit which i am definitely uh hopeful and encouraged by it,
0: it's remarkable too when you mention that though because i worry and i mentioned it yesterday on the show um and and some people agreed and and some people didn't and that's that's what conversations about and debates about but i said if you think now this makes it easier for someone to um for a You know, a homosexual male to come out in the NHL as just with a snap of a finger as as Carl Nassib did in the NFL this year. And we didn't even give it a second thought. And we didn't, you know, you know, parse his words and we didn't say, oh, how are his teammates reacting? I haven't. It's it's the most casual thing. And that shows how far we've advanced because we're not debating it. We did that with Michael Sam. We've done that with other male athletes. But yeah. if you think we're that much closer ahead, I worry that we aren't. And I, I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but I look and go, oh, no, it's harder than you would ever imagine if that's how uh, Kyle Beach has to keep that secret of being molested for 11 years. It's harder than you could possibly imagine.
3: It, of course. And I also think, too, there is forgiveness for these the, the men that perpetrated such violence as well, like Gary Bettman. I, and I'm sure you heard, too, that, you know... Uh, the Panthers head coach is fired Yeah, Quintel. yeah
0: uh, joel quinville oh. right
3: yeah quinville yeah. he's he's he re- he resigned and that's you know basically a match for you resign or we'll fire you but Bettman said if he ever wants to enter the league again we're going to have to have to have a conversation first so it's you know it's still these leaders who you know turned a cheek to sexual assault still being permis- permissible to to enter these spaces so mm. I think that also needs to be looked at. John Gruden too. I, I I would not put my head on a block and say that he's not going to enter the NFL in some way or be within NFL spaces as well. So that's also what we need to look at in and, and, and tandem with keeping these leaders accountable is also looking at how we address toxic masculinity and really um, educate and, um, enable spaces to be safer for these athletes
0: yeah I I, I, I often say well' I'm, I'm not a big believer in some cases of second chances and sometimes people misunderstand that because I do think you can we all can evolve our language we all can evolve our behavior we can figure out how to stop uh, an element of our behavior but there's once you're a fully formed adult and especially if you don't understand any concept of accountability and you' you're, you're u- use, using that and wielding power in a real negative way, I, I don't know about a second chance for a John Gruden. I don't know about a second chance uh, for a Joel Quenville here um, in this case. I, 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 again, there's there's teachable moments and there aren't. I really want to get to this study that you were part of um, involved with the U of T. I'll read the headline for people. Study reveals gaps when it comes to recognizing race recognizing racism in Ontario University sports. Um, you you know were, were involved in the research lab for this what elements of the study surprised you what did you say yeah this is probably what we thought we were going to find out
3: well i think the 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 blatant and the visible um juxtaposition of you had a group of folks who really didn't realize that racism existed on campus at all and in their 40 years of coaching never heard of a racial incident and then you had you know racialized black and indigenous um individuals who were in the system for decades as well and experienced everyday racism so it's it's surprising to me not as surprising the fact that there there is no visible interaction or knowledge of racism on campus and then you mm. have the second thing that did that surprised me was hiring so you have some you know senior leadership positions where you have folks who said, you know, I played football, hockey, then I decided to become a coach, and then I just decided to become an athletic director. And yeah, someone asked me to apply, and I did, and I got the job. Then you have Black, Indigenous, and racialized folks who talked about, you know, I applied, didn't get an interview, didn't get looked at, Taught and then and then maybe coached professional came back to Canada right. still wasn't that you need this certification got it didn't didn't get the job you need masters got it didn't get the job so it's very different experiences that I think we really are proud that we illuminated and hopefully can produce change in those institutions. I think
0: it's, it's, it may be trickiest in all of sport to, to find that. And what I mean by that is I remember when my kid first went out for competitive soccer, the coaches said to him, they said, we can't provide equality. We can't provide equal playing time. All we can do is provide equal opportunity. And sports might be the one aspect, would you say of our society where, you just have to play the best players. I, you know, USA Basketball sends a team to the Olympics this summer, and it's an all-black team. And I shrug my shoulders and I don't give it a thought. If Canada sends only white NHL players this year to uh, the Olympics, you may not give it a like. We don't give those things a second thought. But it's it's seeing yourself being able to advance in the sport in terms of management and just allowing an equal playing field to get out there and play. Do do I have most of that right? All of it right?
3: Well, I think one of the things that I can complicate for you is that notion of recruitment. So um, I, I don't know if you heard about the Akeem Alu um, conversation. Sure. Uh, or, yeah. So I know. If, I know who
0: he is. I called some of his games in junior hockey. Absolutely.
3: Right. So in terms of recruitment, right, there was racism right in the recruitment uh, process where he was, you know, on the notes. They saw he scored high and all of his, you know, skills, but he was. Mm-hmm those conversations between coaches was he coachable was he you know did he have a quote unquote attitude and that prevented him from advancing in the league so when we look visibly at teams and their their makeup there's more behind the story of who makes it right and we also found in our in our study too that coaches would look at kids and see if they went to private school and the private school kids would get a better look than ones who were were uh, non private school kids because they were groomed better. Really? Like, is, like
0: I yeah, I I'd say don't they want to don't they want to win though? That's a weird one for me, right? I'm not disputing it, but I'd think that's not a great coach. Like, doesn't he want to put the best team on the field? Try and be representative, but the goal is to to provide a great program and have good players play with good players, right?
3: For sure. Well, when you get at that level, though, the difference between the skill level is, you know it's it's minor so you look at mm. the difference of the skill level but then when you come to the selection one player over the other mm. at times those are the factors that play into
0: it i i want to talk so much more about the study uh but i'm tight for time will you come on again and, and maybe we can even revisit it in the next couple of weeks
3: anytime anytime this is great thanks for having me.
0: awesome to awesome to have you sabrina rozak uh joining us on global news radio 640 toronto All right, Lisbon, Portugal. What what does that have to do with Toronto? Well, uh, any chance I get to talk about Lisbon, I went there a couple weeks before my wedding in 2004 when the Euros were on, and I loved it. And I haven't been back yet, and that's frustrating to me. I didn't have pending plans, but I want to go back. Our next guest uh, saw exactly how they're utilizing a, uh, how would I put it, an endemic COVID-19 existence. It's here now. Eric Silvers uh, for The Wall Street Journal took the trip there, and he's kind enough to join us now. Eric, it's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time for me.
4: Hi, happy to be here.
0: Tell me what you saw in a highly vaccinated uh, city like Lisbon and and a country. I know it lists as only a half million people, but, you know, the geography. I realize that fast. So many people come into Lisbon and they live within like about a 20, uh, you know, 20 minute, 20 mile stretch. So, well, it's listed as a smaller city, not as big as New York or Toronto. It feels like a massive city.
4: Yeah, no, that's right. But first of all, I tell you, it's not only what I saw, what I heard. I, you were just talking about the Ramones. I was out uh, <laughs> on the town a couple of nights there, and I heard the Ramones. They were living it up uh, also to the Ramones. I didn't hear Pet Cemetery, but I heard uh, some other classics. Um, the, the, the thing that's really interesting about Lisbon and the, and the reason that, that we wanted to do this story was, um, uh, w- was because life there is, is close to normal, but it's not normal. And they're still very careful. I mean, they, they, they have, you know, practically everybody is vaccinated. Uh, they claim that, that, that everybody over the age of 50, I mean, they're not counting people who can't get vaccinated for health reasons, but mm. everybody over the age of 50, 88% of 12 to 17 year olds. So basically everybody's vaccinated and yet they're still using this, uh, you know, the EU COVID cert- certificate is still used in certain places. For example, I went to see a, a soccer game. You can't get in without that. Um, they're still using masks in a lot of places in schools, all kids over the age of 10 have to use masks. And this despite the fact of the really high vaccination rate. So it was interesting for that reason. And of course, I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners will know it contrasts, uh, you know, very much with, with what's going on here in Europe in the UK. Which uh, you know has a lower vaccination rate. They've they've taken off a lot of the restrictions, and unfortunately, the you know they've they've had a steep spike in uh, in infections in the last couple weeks or months.
0: Well, and and are you so are you at this this match that gets written about in the second paragraph? Um, a Champions League match with Benfica and Bayern Munich. You go to that? Do you? Yes, I did. Oh wow! And
4: I, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a, it was a great game as well, but I, I mean, I'm not going to say that everybody and you need, you're supposed to wear the mask inside. I'm not going to say that I didn't see people without the mask. I mean, it, it, it's not like the, the Portuguese are perfect. I mean, that, that's not what I was trying to say, but I'm trying to say that the rules are still in place. Most people are wearing masks in the stadium. Uh, you know, there's crowds, you know, people, and, and especially, and the ironic thing is, is that when they, one of the, the, the biggest crowds form when they're checking this COVID certificate to make sure you're vaccinated. So it's, you know, they're, they're, they're checking, but at the same time, they're creating this, this mass of people, which obviously is not, is not great for COVID, but um, yeah. And, you know, and they, they're, they're shouting and so on. So so, yeah, I mean, it, it, the the reason I think the game was interesting is because, uh, you know, there you have, uh, I mean, like a lot of countries in, you know, soccer is religion there. I'm, I'm based in Italy and soccer is very important here, but it's not quite at the level there of Portugal. And 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 they found a way to, to make it work. I mean, people go there, they show their certificate, they wear their mask and they watch the game.
0: It's Yeah, rather remarkable to think about. Um, Eric Silvers, by the way, our guest from the Wall Street Journal. uh, This great piece. uh, Here's the title. Endemic COVID-19 has arrived in Portugal. This is what it looks like. I know we've got people. I'm hearing them from the right now on text in Toronto. I'm sure people would say in New York, that sounds amazing and they're envious. Is it simply put uh, the vaccination rate that gets cities like uh, major international cities, New York, Toronto, Chicago there at a certain point in time? Many, many people, as you know, regardless of the politicization of the uh, of the virus, have said, well, I'll do this. But what do I get? There's parents that don't want to vaccinate their kids unless they can get the masks off kids. And I understand, like, there have to be some carrots dangled here for people. Clearly, this has worked in Portugal. They said, if you get to this point, we give you a lot of your life back. And they did that.
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think I think you make a good point there about the the you know, you, you can't just be all about sticks because we, we, we feel like since February, March of last year, we've been getting a lot of sticks in the face. So, yeah, I I think that the carrots are, are important and, and there they, you know, I mean, from from, from Seen from the outside, I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot of politics involved in in, in the whole in the whole COVID situation. But I mean, seen from the outside, it could seem like you know they still have these draconian rules there. You know what I mean? I need to show a certificate to go to a stadium, which is outside. You know, my kids over ten. You know, uh, you know the high school kids who who are vaccination rate eighty eight percent of them are vaccinated. And they still need the mask and so on. But at the same time, you know, I, I, as you said, a, a lot a lot of the restrictions were lifted on October first. Um, so, you know, you go, you go into, you go into a shop, you, unless it's a very big store, you don't need to wear a mask, but most people still do, uh, workers still need to, you know, people at the, you know, clerics and so on still need to wear the mask, but you you know, they've loosened, they've loosened for for them. It seems like a lot, you know, for other countries, it might like they've done enough, but I think, I think they found a good equilibrium between the carrots and the sticks. It, it seems to be working. I mean, I'm not, you know, we're, we're going into the cold season. So, I mean, I, I think there's very few people that, you know, public health experts that, that don't think it, you know, the, 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 the infection rate is going to rise. I mean, that's just physiological. I mean, there's, you know, there's very little we can do about that when the winter comes, but I, you know, I, hmm. I don't think anybody expects it's going to be like, they, they just had a harrowing, uh, January. Yeah,
0: of, like, they this did. Year. Yeah
4: just beyond belief.
0: Um, Eric Silver's joining us from the Wall Street Journal. I, I got one more for you, but I want you to be able to stretch out as long as you need with the answer. When I say the you know the virus is politicized, I know instantaneously people think, well, that's that's people on the right, that's Fox News, that's people that won't get uh, won't get vaccinated. But I think it's also been politicized for people to say, you know what? Wait, don't do anything until all of us have had the opportunity to be vaccinated. But then your economy can't grow and confidence can't get regained, and and we're seeing this right now, even fully vaccinated households maybe who are empty nesters who have teenagers of course they want to go back and do things of course they want to get some of their lives back and and someone's quoted in your story and i think lisbon seems to get this hey if people haven't gotten vaccinated by now meaning adults they're probably not going to so who exactly are we waiting for before we try and return to a semblance of normalcy they get it
4: yeah yeah that that's that's an interesting point i mean that's an interesting point but the guy the guy who said that it, he's saying it in a context where almost everybody is vaccinated yeah so so, but, but, you know, I mean, I, I understand the, the public health experts and the, and the politicians who, who, who are afraid to let up because maybe instead of 90, 90% of the people vaccinated, you're at, you're at 70. I mean, it, I mean, it's a, it's a world of difference. I mean, it, it you just have to, I mean, you, you can't make a perfect comparison with the UK because they, they, they've, 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 they've ditched most of the restrictions. But I mean, if, if, you know, if you've got 20 points different in the vaccination rate, I mean, there's going to be, there's going to be a big. You know, there's going to be a big difference in, in, in what happens when you open up. But I mean, I think, I think, mm. um, I, I, yeah, I, I think they've got to they've got to the end. In fact, they've they've. Um, and that that's exactly why 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 we wanted to do this story. I mean, they they you know they still have obviously vaccination centers, but they've they've closed down the big one. They've closed down the big vaccination centers. They've they've disbanded. They had a, a sort of a special commission that was run by by this general and and stuff like that. That that's been that's yeah. been disbanded and so on. So so yeah, they're they're trying to move on. Let's let's hope for them and I guess for the whole world that that their experiment you know works as, as we go into the colder months.
0: Uh, I loved reading it, and uh, happy to amplify it. Eric, thanks very much for making the time for us. Uh, c- c- I would say enjoy Italy, but how is that? It's impossible not to enjoy Italy. Um, <laughs> but uh, thank you very much for making the time for us in Toronto today.
4: All right, you bet, Thanks for calling. I appreciate it.
0: Eric Silvers, a uh, Wall Street Journal. Um, two years ago, I think we had the worst Halloween weather ever. How do I remember this? Um, I was working here. I know that, so it was one of the rare, I think the only Halloween night. With kids uh, that I've never, I haven't been home or out trick or treating. I it's usually one or the other, and sometimes you feel bad. Sometimes you actually go to another neighborhood. Friend says, "Come, come to this neighborhood." And we we'll, and we did that a couple of times when, when we were when we were really little kids, and we're like, "But no one's at our house to hand out the candy." And I think that's X ex- or the chocolate or you know, um, you know, some some pasta maybe if you're you know your your carbs are falling a little bit below the surface. And, uh, and we're going to do that this year and make sure that someone's home on Sunday night, no less. We'll be, we'll be waiting all day for Sunday night, as I like to say. And, uh, and we'll be able to be there because I, when I saw that poll number earlier this week, oh, damn polls, um, and, and it documented that a certain amount of Canadians, a high number of Canadians, aren't going to open the door. Uh, that bothered me. So I'm going to make sure that we are at the Brady's are a door open. We have a door open policy. Now you got to leave after about 11 seconds. I don't think there's any question about that. You got to keep moving and move it along and go to the next house. And most kids want to do that anyway. Most parents are used to sending their five and six year olds up to the doorstep. Okay. Uh, and then like you, you want to make sure there's a thank you. You want to make sure uh common courtesy and decency and etiquette and politeness are there. Okay. You can't, don't trample all over the bushes. Don't knock those gravestones down. You never know if they could be real. You never do know. There's 360 million people that live in the United States. Do you think none of them have buried uh, have buried relatives in the front yard? None? <laughs> Zero out of 360 million? I don't think you know that. So uh, we'll get to a little bit on Halloween later. And by the way, there's always that myth about tampered candies. A g- Great study. A great study. There's always a story every year. But the freshest study I could find about the myths about that, you know, razor blades and apples. And um, now when I was 10, that was when the I think 9, 10, when the Tylenol scandal was happening. I think that was happening in Chicago where uh, people were tampering. Tylenol kind of came on the market late. You never heard about anything to do with Tylenol when you grew up as a tiny kid. It was always aspirin. Do you need an aspirin? OK, and then Tylenol uh, came and, and really marketed well and got out there. And it's tough to break through, right? Like first in usually wins. Coke and Pepsi. can you, Has there been a third coal to challenge those two? No, of course not. Uh, have there been rival leagues challenged the NFL and NHL? Of course. Do they end up succeeding? No. So <laughs> first in often wins, but Tylenol was a different story. And then somebody started tampering with Tylenol, so like maybe two or three bottles And then everybody panicked about Tylenol. And I think this is what happened with the idea of a razor blade in an apple. I think this happened one time in like 1970, 50 plus years ago. And since then, we haven't even mentioned it. Let me get to this uh, update, if you will, from last night. Last night, Joel Quenville resigned as head coach of the Florida Panthers. He flew to New York to meet with NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman. He probably knows the outcome before he uh, takes that flight. So I sure hope there was a movie on board or the service was good and there wasn't some kind of, you know, anti-mask demonstration on the flight. That's my biggest fear in getting on a plane uh, in this day and age. Um, And in a virtual world, maybe, just maybe, Bettman saw fit to have Quenville there in person in order to say, you're done. But the Bettman quote is this following a meeting with Mr. Quenville, who, by the way, is the second most winningest coach. I might have said fourth, but he's the second most winningest coach ever in the NHL for regular season games. He's probably not going to catch Scotty Bowman. He's about 350 wins behind Scotty Bowman. But he, um, but, but the potential was there if he were to coach closer to 70 because teams just play more games now and there's no ties anymore, right? That's a big reason Martin Bruder got to be the winningest coach um, hockey goalie quickly is because most of his era we've had to shoot out in overtime and we don't settle games in a tie anymore for the legendary goalies prior to that we did and also scotty bowman took like five six years off um just to be on tv for a while before coming back to the pittsburgh penguins he was he was not coaching for a good chunk of the mid to late 80s i think he came along when bob johnson got sick with pittsburgh around 90, 90 91 maybe Uh, And then moved on to Detroit from there and coached only eight more years. So Scotty Bowman was older, but he didn't coach as long as you think he did. Anyway, Quenville, uh, here's the quote. Following a meeting with Mr. Quenville that took place this afternoon in my office, all parties agreed it was no longer appropriate that he continue to serve as Florida's head coach. We thank the Panthers organization for working with us to ensure that a thorough process was followed. Given the result, and this is what I find interesting, there's no need for any further action by the NHL regarding Mr. Quenville at this time. However, should he wish to re-enter the league in some capacity in the future, I will require a meeting with him in advance in order to determine the appropriate conditions under which such new employment might take place. And if you're wondering again about Quenville's role in this, Quenville was part of a group of management types including the general manager, Stan Bowman, and another gentleman I'll talk about who will fly from Winnipeg to New York to meet his fate today. And I know what his fate will be, and you probably do too. But um, he was one of a group of management types with the Blackhawks in 2010 who are now being sued, the organization is, by Kyle Beach, who came forward Wednesday night as John Doe, and he's filed a lawsuit against the team for mishandling his sexual assault allegations in 2010 and mishandle it they did. The Blackhawks commissioned an investigation by a law firm. They looked into the allegations that now convicted sex offender and former video coach Brad Aldrich sexually assaulted and harassed Beach during the team's 2010 Stanley Cup run. Now, Quenville was made aware of the situation and had at least one meeting, when we used to do that, meet with people in person, regarding the allegations during the 2010 postseason. Quenville previously said... He only learned of the allegations in the summer of 2021 through the media. Well, that's a lie. Joel Quenville is lying. Now, is he a liar because he lied? We've all lied before. Um, yeah, I remembered to pick up milk. Yeah, I can drop the kid off on. But that's different. That's not what this is. And now for Kevin off. this is fairly obvious what will transpire here. And would you even bother flying from Winnipeg into wherever, LaGuardia, Kennedy, Newark, which is my preferred destination? Would you even fly in knowing what's going to happen today? Well, I don't think Kevin Cheveldayoff has a choice. And hes he was the assistant general manager of the time. I've heard him on other uh, radio stations described as an assistant coach. He was not an assistant coach. It's okay if you don't follow hockey. I'm just trying to help out. Uh, but Quenville was the head coach. Shevel Dayoff was the assistant GM. and He's been the only general manager the Winnipeg Jets have ever known. Now, I think he's taking that job in Winnipeg regardless. You want to move up on the ladder in the NHL. And Shevel Dayoff was able to do that. But he gets out of Chicago also very quickly. And I don't find it suspicious. I don't uh, after the Aldrich Dilemma. The bigger problem I have with Quenville here, and I'm going to play some audio from John Tortorella talking about this in a sec, um, who, you know, is is a very high, you know, wired up, intense NHL coach, uh, to put it mildly. I mean, you don't want to try and get into uh, another dressing room like he did in a Canucks Flames hockey night in Canada game and try to attack the other coach unless you're wired up. Tortorella's made his own mistakes, not to this extent. Okay, that's a different mistake to make. And these aren't even mistakes. Quenville is basically uh, subverting truth and integrity by saying, well, I didn't know about it. You did. And there's meetings that document it. And if had said the same thing, he's done today. He won't be an executive in the NHL for a good chunk of time. But my bigger problem with Joel Quenville, and it's hard to believe I have a bigger problem than denying the knowledge about Kyle Beach. But here's what he did. In the separation of the organization with this particular coach, an eventual sexual pedophile predator, Joel Quenville recommended him for another job. And Joel Quenville said, he's fantastic. Joel Quenville said, he's brilliant. He's wonderful. He's amazing. Now, that's the problem. You can see it right here. Is writing a convicted pedophile predator soon to be a glowing letter of recommendation It got that guy hired at Miami University in Ohio, the Miami in Ohio, in Oxford, Ohio, and at a Michigan high school twice where he clearly reoffended at both places. There were no convictions in Miami, but he left under clouded circumstances that people at the University of Miami are still not talking about. And they better start. There's no rehabbing these monsters There's no rehabbing these people. There's no second, third chances. When I sometimes say I don't believe in second chances, um, this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Okay, it's not trying to educate somebody who's 17 who made a mistake on social media. It's not somebody who, you know, slept in for an exam or cheated on an exam. It's not somebody who can't figure out how to be uh, proper, if you will, in a relationship. Those are opportunities. It's up to each individual person to decide to give somebody a new opportunity in those departments. Not here. Not now. Never. Never. Okay? So it's malicious and thoughtless on the part of Quenville to write this guy a letter knowing there's clouded circumstances and knowing they need to get him the double, triple, quadruple H out of the organization. Make it somebody else's problem. Okay? Okay. No good. John Tortorella said this on ESPN yesterday and talked about the fact that this just isn't quote unquote, an old boys club. This is something that's got to get fixed. It's got to get fixed from the inside. And he can't figure out how a group of grown men, many of whom are parents, did this all in unison and in concert. That's what's crazy to me is it's, it's multiple people. This wasn't a one man decision. It's
1: multiple people. I just don't get why one guy couldn't just stand up and say, "You know what? No, this is wrong." It, 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 to me, hockey and, and things that go on in the locker room, all the situations you go through—sure, it happens a lot during the year. This is this is totally different. This is this is sexual assault, which is far—it casts a shadow over the game of hockey. And that's what that's what kind of is crazy to me that one man couldn't stand up and say, "You know what? No way." We have to get this strained out right now.
0: And I bet they wish they did now. That's John Tortorella on ESPN yesterday. I don't doubt that they wish they did. I don't think anybody is going to double down on this and say, I still think what I did was right. Sweeping it under the rug? Recommending Aldrich for another job in which he could work with even younger men and boys? I don't think so. You set a predator on the loose. You had him in your grasp. You could have tightened the screws and ended up getting him away from ever working with kids again. But let's face it, this is a perpetual issue, In sometimes in sports, sometimes in sports, but certainly in hockey. You do remember Graham James, and you remember the guy was a hero in Swift Current. After the big, there was a huge bus, bus crash. It killed a few people. He coached in Swift Current, then moved on from Swift Current when things started to get a little hot. Uh, and became the general manager of the Calgary Hitmen. And he was there two or three years. But when we consider that Graham James got three and a half years in jail. And was out on parole after two years. Basically and several months. Hugely problematic. And this is before Theo Fleury revealed anything about the allegations. About the allegations and uh, and eventually proven allegations against Graham James. Horrific to think. 350 encounters for Graham James with two underage players over a span of 10 years. And they couldn't possibly couldn't possibly have been the only ones. Hey, thanks for checking out the Toronto today podcast for a Friday. We'll be back with a live show. The first day of November, as a matter of fact, as we turn to the 11th month of the year, you can always find us on Apple podcasts. Please subscribe, rate us as well. Tell us what you like to hear and what you might like to hear more of. Have yourself a great weekend.